All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We covered last week the canon of Holy Scripture, of course, canon meaning rule, and so we see how these biblical texts divide into homolegomena and antilegomena. The antilegomena are those that are spoken against, and so they don't carry the same weight and authority as the homolegomena, but nonetheless, these two categories comprising the canon or the source and norm of our faith. And again, the fancy word, the norma normans, the norming norm. (laughs) So not only is it the norm, but it's that which norms all lesser norms. And those lesser norms we would call norma normata, and these would include things like the creeds or like the Book of Concord and the various confessional documents within them. They themselves are subordinate to the Scriptures, normed by the Scriptures, but they also serve as norms then uh, for all teachers and all Christians moving forward. We had an in-depth look at that, and that was on pages 44 through 45. And now we're going to go into page 46, which is... Again, going to be how a minister or a pastor is to use these scriptures and to what ends within the church. We know that the central reason for God granting the pastoral office unto his church is for the proclamation of the gospel, the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And that is to be an ongoing proclamation because as soon as you become a Christian, you don't suddenly outgrow your need for the gospel. And unfortunately, that is the case in many American churches. The gospel's for those outside, and once you're inside, it's just nothing but law and works and self-improvement. Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel is meant for those outside the church to draw them in, and the gospel is meant for those inside of the church to strengthen them in their trust, in their faith in God and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. Now, while that's the central thrust of the ministry, are there not other aspects, other things that a pastor in the church is to teach? And the answer is yes. Otherwise, I suppose you could just replace any pastor with an absolution droid. Maybe you can get that, what is that uh, AI that chat AI thing that's going on right now, you could just type in, am I forgiven? And it would say, yes. Here's my confession. Will you pronounce absolution? I pronounce absolution. You could just go on your merry way if that's all there was to it. We could also, again, get reductio ad absurdum, if the only point is that you hear that your sins are forgiven, well, we could cut out a whole lot of the Bible, couldn't we? or viewed from a different angle, God sure wasted a lot of breath and a lot of ink giving us the rest of the scriptures if all we need to know is your sins are forgiven. So we're going to take a look at how the scriptures themselves describe the expansive nature of the pastoral office as a teaching office as well. Before we get into all of that, let's have our invocation and opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's pick up on page 46 at question 51, which is where we left off. What does God require of ministers of the church, and how does he want them to dispense his mysteries? Okay, now again, just a note on the language. Ministers here is not used in the broad sense, as in the servants of the church, in which case, you know, all Christians to one degree or another are ministers in that sense. But this would be ministers as in those servants called specifically to the office of the holy ministry. And how does he want them to dispense his mysteries? Uh, Let a man so account us as stewards of the mysteries of God, St. Paul writes. And again, that language of mysterion in Greek becomes uh, sacramentum in Latin, which becomes mysteries in English, and or sacraments in English. But of course, more broadly, the mysteries of the Christian faith are really every article of the Christian faith. The idea of a Christian mystery, again, being there is knowable content. It's just that one's knowledge can ever and continually increase. So, and there are there are also you know inherent in these mysteries some things that tend to contradict human reason or tend to contradict human sight, human experience. So that also is why they're frequently called mysteries. You can think of the mystery of the hypostatic union of Christ. How is it that as true God, he knows all things. As true man, he grows in wisdom, as St. Luke tells us. And yet, these are not two separate persons, but one person. That's a mystery. It causes our reason to recoil and indeed to submit itself to the plain word of God. So that would be an example of a kind of contradictory thing. Um, One that might be a mystery or have a mysterious element because it's contrary to our sight. Well, that's an obvious one. The sacraments proper are just like that. Do you see the Holy Spirit himself descending like a dove on the newly baptized? No. You just see plain old water poured over the head. Or when you look with your eyes at the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, you're going to see nothing other than bread and wine. You're going to taste and smell nothing other than bread and wine. But on account of God's word, you know that that bread is his body, that wine is his blood. And so there's an element there of uh, what is unseen. Okay, so that hopefully will give us a general sense for this term, mysteries. And again, the point is, what does God require of ministers of the church? How does he want them to dispense his mysteries? Paul covers this very briefly, 1 Corinthians 4. Verses 2 and 4. Let the dispensers of the mysteries of God therefore set before themselves 
the future judgment of God, in which they will be rewarded according to the measure of faithfulness before the judgment seat of Christ. So this is a very healthy admonition, both to those within the office and to those who are outside of the office, that how one conducts his ministry has an eschatological consequence to it. Teachers, as the scriptures say, and of course we're talking about those who are in the office, face a stricter judgment. Why? Because of the precise nature of the pastoral vocation, it is, you know, while we all are going to be judged on the basis of our vocations uh, and, and what we've done in the body, the pastoral office is unique because it is the office of Christ, standing in the stead of Christ and speaking on behalf of Christ. If you mess that up, that's kind of a big deal. So that's the origin of that, and, and it's sobering. It's good and healthy for us as pastors to remember that. We're not merely accountable to our circuit visitor or our district president or even our synodical president. As St. Paul would say, it's a small thing that I'd be judged by any man. <laughs> but rather we are accountable and beholden to the Almighty One, Christ our Savior. And then likewise, um, as the royal priesthood, those outside of that office, to remember that that's what our pastors, that's the nature of their vocation, and that's what our pastors have in their minds as they're conducting their office, so you can be encouraged all the more to hold them up in prayer and realize the magnitude of of what they're doing. And on a very human level, uh, our our uh, lack of capacity, our lack of ability, it must indeed be God who blesses through the office. Okay, so anything you want to uh, bring up on question 51? Okay, there's a hand or two raising up. Rising up, I should say. Yeah, when I see the mysteries, what pops into my mind is that uh, prior to Martin Luther, everything was in Latin. Very few people read at all, and even fewer read Latin. Um, so it, it's, it was, what I, from some of the stuff I've read and heard in previous classes, um, is that the church was trying to maintain them as mysteries by making it, basically inaccessible to anybody but priests. Mm. Mm. Yeah, okay, so there is a, I think we want to make a clear distinction here. So the scriptures themselves speak of the mysteries of God. So there's this objective thing called a mystery, and what I was seeking to do earlier in the class is define that in a biblical sense and, and in an ecclesiastical sense, the way it's been used throughout the centuries of the history of the church. But I think what you're pointing out, then it would be a specific nuance or twisting of that, where at certain times in the life of the church, uh, the true nature of the Word of God has been hidden from the laity in order to sort of bolster this idea that 
those who are in the priesthood are first-class Christians, and those who are in the pews are second-class Christians, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I was trying to bring up, point out, get you to... <laughs> yeah, so I, again, I would say that um, you know that's an exploitation. It's not in any way inherent in the language or meaning of mystery, uh, but it's an exploitation. And again, that on the basis of just some really bad theology uh, that I don't think we really suffer from in our modern context in the LCMS. You kind of see this ironically, ironically, in, in our context, in some of the big box pastors. It's really a strange thing. Because they'll dress down, like, you know, Hawaiian shirt and khaki pants or whatever, as if to say, like, hey, I'm just like you. I'm no different. But the entire premise of them being up there is that they are different. That they have something to say that everyone else needs to listen to. Now, if you analyze this, what that does is it transfers the authority away from the office and rather to the expertise of the man. Or in our culture, maybe not so much expertise, but cult of personality. So the authority isn't in the office. In fact, he strips off the garments that would demonstrate that he's in an office. And he says, hey, I'm just like you. But no, you're not. You're up on the stage telling me what I should do. So the authority has been transferred from the office to your person and to your own development as a person. You see the, you see the subtle change, but it's a big change. So, ironically, you end up with this idea of, oh, he's the super-Christian. That's why he's up there. He's got it figured out. He's got an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. And again, irony of ironies, that's actually closer to the medieval clericalism or sacerdotalism than it is to anything else. Whereas then, why we retain a strong doctrine of the office, especially here in America, why it's so important for us to, is that we avoid that danger of the cult of personality. This person is an office bearer. And that's why the garments are frankly important, in the same way they're important for a police officer or a judge, so that everyone, including himself, recognizes that he has an office and role and is beholden and accountable to that office and role. A police officer isn't a police officer because he's a super moral guy. He's put into an office. Likewise, a pastor isn't a pastor because he's a super spiritual guy, but because he's placed into an office. Now, just as the office of police officer has certain qualifications in order to be placed into that office, same with the office of the pastoral ministry. It has certain qualifications to be placed into that office. Okay? But that's different than saying, you're a super moral guy, and therefore we listen to you. No, therefore, when you pull me over, I'll stop. No, it's because you're an officer. You bear an office. And likewise, then, as Christ ordains it in the church, we listen to pastors because they have an office and authority given by Christ, 
not because they're some sort of super spiritual gurus with an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. That ends up, in American evangelicalism, creating a two-tier system. There's the bozos on the bus, so to speak. That's all of us common plebs sipping our lattes, not understanding it. And there's the spiritual guru up on the stage in the lights, uh, who's really the superstar Christian. Uh, Christ does not ordain it as such. It's not the cult of personality or the unique gifts of a specific individual. Rather, Christ institutes it such that there is a royal priesthood, everyone having this great ontological honor, that in our very beings we are royal priests under the one high priest, Christ Jesus. And then from those royal priests, there are certain men who are qualified to fulfill the office of preaching and administering the sacraments. And they're called and ordained by the church to do that. But it's the office, not the man. And ideally, what that means, the strength of the pastoral office, is that the individual men themselves are basically replaceable. So my goal as a pastor, your goal as a congregation, is that if I die in the office, or if I uh, am called to another place, or heaven forbid, if I have uh, some reason why I'm no longer fit for the office, that a new man is placed into this office and everything keeps clicking. That's the idea. That's the strength of the church as Christ institutes it. Whereas if an entire church is based around the cult of personality, not the office, what happens when the superstar preacher falls from grace or when the superstar preacher dies in office or uh, decides to do something else? All of a sudden, the whole church is in jeopardy. And indeed, we've seen churches collapse when their charismatic leader no longer is there in the pulpit, so to speak. So that's cult of personality. So again, what's being highlighted here is the office, not the cult of personality. And upholding the office is actually anti-clericalism, anti-sacerdotalism, whereas a low view of the office lends itself to a very subtle, pernicious form of clericalism and sacerdotalism. Let me pause there then, and thank you for that opportunity to go off <laughs> on my own little field trip. Okay, we have a, a hand here and then a hand here, yeah. Yes, going back, what you're saying, that teachers are under a more restricted judgment. I, I wrestle. I, I know every Christian has the same amount of Holy Spirit. They're all the same as righteous. You know, there's not one Christian who's more righteous than the other. But what does that judgment look like? You know, what is being judged and what is the consequences? What what does it look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's actually one of the mysteries (laughs) of the the faith. Let me me just give you, um, based on the scriptures and based on the studying I've done, let me give you the best answer I can give you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we face the judgment, so to speak, and usually theologians call this the particular judgment. So, you know, we're waiting for the ends of the earth when the whole earth is judged. 
That's the macro eschatology, the, the end times of the entire age and world. But there's a micro eschatology, a particular judgment that happens when you and I die. When we die, we face that particular judgment. And we are assured that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that there isn't still an accounting. I would liken this, by way of analogy, to confession and absolution with Jesus as the confessor and absolver. He's not there to condemn you. He's not there to throw you into hell. But what he is there to do is to absolve you. I do think that there's a sense of reckoning that takes place. And I think that Paul talks about this very plainly. And I think for a couple hundred years, maybe at most, maybe even a hundred years in the church, we haven't known how to reconcile these things. And so we've kind of done this. Well, Paul says that every man will be held accountable in the body for what he has done in the body. Okay. And we've said there, okay, but that's what Paul says in one place. And in another place he says there's no condemnation. So this just must be a bunch of rhetoric. This must just be a bunch of threat and then taking away the threat. Well, that's a mind game. That's manipulative. And I don't think that that's what Paul's doing in the least. I think what Paul is communicating to us is this mystery that what we do in this life does matter. And there, there is a kind of reckoning that takes place. There's a kind of rewarding that is relative that takes place. And pastors face that uh, all the more intensely because of the nature of their work. Where does Paul teach this? 1 Corinthians 3, where he is talking specifically about teachers in the church. I think it more broadly applies to all Christians, at least in the dynamic. But he is speaking specifically in 1 Corinthians 3 about pastors. No man can lay down the foundation except that which has already been laid, which is Christ Jesus. But one builds upon that foundation with either wood, hay, and stubble, which are cheap, easy to accumulate, and you can build up a giant edifice in no time at all. Or there are those who build with gold, silver, and precious stones, which are, in fact, very hard to come by, very hard to keep, because everybody wants them. And the building you do with those things is painstakingly small, especially when compared to the giant edifice that somebody can build up with wood, hay, and stubble. But what's the problem with wood, hay, and stubble? It's, yeah, it's not fireproof. It burns. Whereas gold, silver, and precious stones, when the fire comes, these are only purified. And they shine all the more gloriously. Now, what does St. Paul says? The man who builds with wood, hay, and stubble will be saved. Why? Because after the wood, hay, and stubble is all burned, what remains? Yeah, the foundation, which is Christ. So he is saved, St. Paul says, and yet as one who passes through fire. The one who builds with gold, silver, and precious stones, his work also passes through fire. But it's fireproof. It stands, and in fact, it stands all the more gloriously. So I can tell you 
hands down and without embarrassment in the least, without apology in the least, I am trying to <laughs> build with gold, silver, and precious stones. I know that that testing, that fire in Paul's uh, uh, language and, and picture, that fire, pergos, which is, by the way, where the, de- where the development of purgatory comes from, this idea that this, this burning takes place over millions of years, and yeah, nonsense. But what is true, is that, and biblical, and according to St. Paul, is that there is a judgment, everything is tested by fire, so to speak, and that which is good stands, and that which is not good is burned away. But whether, even if your whole life's work were burnt away, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The foundation remains. So I think Paul's very clear that when we die and face the particular judgment, there's a kind of reckoning that happens. There's a higher scrutiny placed upon those who bear the office because of the nature of their work. But even while there is this judgment on the basis of works and subsequent rewarding on the basis of these works, there remains the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that help in terms of the... okay? It's not always the answer you'll get, because I think, again, I think the 20th century, while it was maybe like one of the worst times in terms of world wars and persecution of Christians in the history of the world, I I think it was the worst time. I think the same thing was happening theologically. I think there was a theological world war. And by the way, I don't think that the devil pays any attention to the centuries the way we do. So I think what was going on in the 20th century is just continuing on into the 21st century, but there's a war on these fundamental tenets of theology, and Lutheranism has not um, come out of that unscathed. Yeah. So anyway, when we talk about the judgment, does that help? It helps give you a picture? Again, I, I liken it in my mind, these just in an overly simplistic way, to when I die, I expect to meet the Lord, and I expect it to be very much the tone and tenor of confession absolution. And I also really long for it, because I not only long for his absolution, but I long to know where I was right and wrong. I, I long for, them, for there to be tr- capital T truth, capital S sense, capital J judgment, in the sense of this is right and this was wrong. You were right here, but in the wrong way. <laughs> uh, you can even be wrong here, but in the right way. That's a longer discussion. That comes from the book of Job. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, suffice it to say, I think we as creatures long for our creator. We who are subjective long for the objective. And we long for that finality to have the diagnosis and to have the cure and to be healthy and whole forever. And to be completely unified with our Lord in all things. I mean, that's what I, it's kind of why I long for that moment and why I'm not, I mean, I tremble at the idea, of course, but I'm not particularly fearful in the sense that, like, Christ is going to rug pull me and send me to hell because (laughs) that's not who he is. That's not who he is. And so we can have great confidence in that. Okay, was there another, was there another hand? Please. I think you answered my question. Um, it was basically the same as John's. Um, 
when you said no condemnation for those in Christ, because my question was going to be, would this pertain to sanctification only for the man that holds the office, or could it be justification as well? And so if, if the man holds true, is in Christ, then then he would be justified, and it would just apply to sanctification? Yeah, well, maybe I can clarify with another one of Jesus' teachings on the judgment. Okay, so in Matthew 25, Christ comes in judgment, and he sends out his angels, and the first thing they do is separate the sheep from the goats. That would be analogous to justification. Who are the sheep? Yeah, we are. Those who have believed in Christ are his sheep. He's the shepherd, we're his sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. So, immediately, the Christians are on his right hand, and those who have rejected him are on the left hand. Sound familiar? It's like Christ hanging on the cross with the two thieves. Both of them start by ridiculing him. But by the end, one has turned and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he has said, today you will be with me in paradise. The other ridicules, rejects, and ignores him unto his own death. That's it. That's the microcosm of the whole world, by the way. You're either one man or the other. So then, likewise, this judgment where the sheep are on his right hand and the goats on his left. Now, what does he say to the sheep? He doesn't say, look, you've believed in me, even though that's true, and that's the basis. That's why they're sheep. That's why they're already on his right hand. That's justification. But then he mentions what? Only the good things that they did unto his brethren. Indeed, as you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. So he mentions only their he mentions their sanctification, but there in this now this is the macro eschatology. This is the large judgment, so it's a little different than the particular. But there he mentions only the good. As he turns to those on his left, the unbelievers, everything that is done apart from faith is sin. Saint Paul writes. And so likewise, Jesus, when he turns to those who do not entrust themselves to him, who do not have faith, he mentions only, con- whoops, excuse me, only condemnation, only those things that they failed to do unto the brethren and thus failed to do unto him. So I think sanctification is always in view. Now, if we take that down to the particular judgment, okay, sanctification is precisely what's in view and what's being tested by those fires. And that which is sanctified and holy lasts and remains as the gold, silver, and precious stones. That which is unsanctified and unholy is burnt away, as is the wood, hay, and stubble. But again, in that case, what remains? The foundation. So one's justification, one's salvation is absolutely 100% sure in that sense because it's based on Christ's word. The question isn't how much do you believe in it. The question is, did God say it? Yes, Does he lie? No. Then it's certain on the basis of his word, on the basis of the fact that he does not lie. Then our eternal salvation is certain. But of course, as his servants, we submit ourselves to him, and indeed, our sanctification there is rewarded. Whatever is sinful and remains in us is purged away, thanks be to God. 
And really, isn't that the essence of what death itself is? Okay, we know how to take Jesus' words, though you die, yet shall you live. You're going to die, you're going to go into the grave. On the last day I will raise you up. Though you die, yet shall you live. But what he says next is more instructive. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What does that mean then? That means that as you pass through death, it is not you that is dying. It is the old man within you that is dying. So as you pass through death, that old man is dying. As you pass through the fire, the wood, hay, and stubble is being burned away. What remains is the new man, however developed he is, however, many, however much gold, silver, however many precious stones, that remains. And hypothetically, if there were none whatsoever, or if there was none that survived, there is nonetheless the foundation, which is Christ Jesus. There is nonetheless no condemnation for those who believe in me. There is eternal life and salvation guaranteed, you see. I think that this is the way to reconcile and understand all these biblical texts. And, by the way, I don't think I'm alone in that. I just think that Lutheranism has forgotten these things, like I said, for maybe a hundred years or so. Okay, please. Just a a quick comment, if you want to comment on my comment. Could you call this um, fire a purgative purgative event? Yeah, of course. As in in the sense that the Catholics use purgatory, only that theirs goes on for thousands of years. What if there's no time? It it might be similar to what, what they're talking about. I don't know. Yeah, so we can, we can do just a little bit more on this tangent. Is it of interest, or are we dying to get back to the text? Is this okay? Okay, so gauging from the uh, sort of muddled response, we'll make, it, we'll make it quick. Yeah, make it quick. All right, all right. So, um, so when we talk about, if, if you hear the word purgatory, what you want to remember is that the root is purgos, which is fire. The scriptures themselves describe two events as being events of purgos or purgation. Peter describes this life as a fiery trial, as a purgative trial. And any of you have been, who have been Christian more than five minutes know that. Okay? It is a painful burning away of the self and a painful burning away of one's wrong ideas and wrong thoughts and wrong orientations and wrong hopes and wrong dreams and everything else. It is a, so this life is a purgative event. Uh, C.S. Lewis also noted that, by the way. I don't even know that it was connected specifically with that, that scripture. He said the longing for purgatory is good. The problem is when you place it after this life. It's already happening in this life. And that's why St. Peter writes, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, the, purgator- the purgative trial that you are undergoing, but as, and here's his exa- Peter's example, but as fire purifies the gold, so also the Heavenly Father is purifying you. It's the same ethos of he disciplines those whom he loves, right? If you have gold, but it's covered in all kinds of dross and imperfections, you burn, that, you burn it, you put fire upon it. Why? Because you hate it? No, because you want to purify it, precisely because you love it and you want it to shine all the more. A father doesn't discipline his son because he hates his son, but rather because he loves his son and wants his son to be 
all the more. And so also then God puts these fiery trials upon us. So I'm going to preach on this one of these days. But this is why the early church fathers didn't believe that sickness, physical ailments, were, were in the Christian age precisely something to be healed from. But rather they were the medicine themselves. Because they're putting to death something within you. They're healing something in you spiritually. That's an incredible idea, and it fits this perfectly. Now, the second way that the scriptures talk about pergos, or a purgative event, is precisely the way I've been talking about it in 1 Corinthians 3 with St. Paul, and that is upon death. This particular judgment, individual judgment that we all face, it's a purgative event because the events of our life are passed through fire, And because the foundation that is Christ remains, we are saved and there's no condemnation. But what is good remains, what is bad is consumed and taken away. Those are the two ways that scripture talk about a purgative event, a fiery event, in this life and immediately upon death. Now, obviously, in the medieval period, and for entirely different reasons, this whole bizarre doctrine gets made that after death, You've got to go to some, um, I don't know, do any of our houses have like these anti-rooms out here? I don't think so. Where you kind of come in and it's the mud room. It's the place where you take off your boots and your jacket. Probably not, because we don't just wear flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts out here. Uh, but in, uh, in other locales, you'll have to trust me, okay? There are these kind of anti-rooms where you come in, you take off all your dirty stuff and you enter in. So in, by way of analogy, this is how uh, many medieval theologians began to think of purgatory, is that it's an anteroom of heaven, and it's the place where you come in and you get cleaned off before you enter in. But there's two errors there where they go further than the scriptures. In the first place, they call it a place. That's a problem, because the scriptures never define a place where this happens. And the second thing is they start ascribing a duration to it. And that's the other thing the scriptures don't do. The scriptures don't talk about a duration. So they, they take these biblical principles and develop them, wrap around them this whole other theology that is wrong and erroneous, that we go to some place, and depending upon how good or how bad you are, you're either going to spend like five minutes there or five million years there. Uh, but that's a big problem. Because what happens if you have a bunch of guys who are there for five million years, but then we all expect the Lord to return any time? What happens to their sentence if he comes back? So even modern Rome has started to backpedal and push away from the way it used to speak about purgatory. For example, uh, the late Pope Benedict XVI, who recently died, um, he in his book on eschatology really pushes hard against that and wants to see the purgative event as taking place after death but not being in a locale, and not having a set duration. He's only by degree away from what we Lutherans and the rest of the small C Catholic Church have always held, and that is he simply needs to move that to the event of death itself. And then he's with us. So those are the two ways in which we can properly understand the purgos, the purgative event in this life. And why, truthfully speaking, we do enter heaven... um, as sinless saints. 
as sinless saints. You don't go into heaven with the old man clinging to you because you go into heaven with the old man dead and buried. And you go into heaven as the new man cleansed and purged of this. Another way to think about this is um, this is how baptism completes us in one of our hymns. And it's really only the first half of baptism. You know, baptism is a drowning, a putting to death. So the first part of baptism's work is completed as we die. Old Adam is finally drowned and brought to death. And then the second part and final part of baptism is completed when we rise and emerge out of those waters. And that's finalized when we rise in our bodies on the last day. Okay, that's maybe enough for enough on that. Um, Were there any other questions? Did I, we all got there? Okay. So let's jump in then um, to question 52. And again, we kind of launched off on this idea of the future judgment, and that's fine. And this warning to those who hold the office um, that there is a stricter judgment, of course, and then there is reward for what we do in the office. Now, that is a general teaching of Scripture, is that what you do in this life, um, if, it's, if it's evil, Christ graciously purges it away. If it's good... Christ graciously rewards you. In fact, he says, I mean, this is where it is actually good news that God keeps track, that God keeps count, because as he promises, even something so small as giving a cup of water to someone in his name does not escape his attention. He will by no means lose his reward. See, what happens when we, when we don't teach any reward or when we don't teach any degrees of uh, what's to come, then everything gets flat and everything's just, well, you get into heaven no matter what. Well, then why would I do anything? It doesn't matter, right? Why would I do this good selfless work or why would I, why would I do th- or, or this bad selfish work? It doesn't matter if it's all just forgiven by Christ and there's no further consequence to it. It doesn't matter. And that's a lot of where we've come from. That's a lot of what our theology has been. And it's, it's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. So rather, yeah, everything is cleansed in Christ. But if you do that good selfless thing, Christ takes note and promises that you will by no means lose your reward. That is precisely the motivation for turning away from the selfish bad things and turning toward the good because we know that they please the Lord and we know that he promises us reward. Now, down here on earth, no good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) So we need this promise of Christ that even though you do your good deed and you get punished on earth, bear it. It's temporary. And if you don't think I can make good on that, then you don't know who I am yet. Because I will make good on all of that. Even though for your good deed, you were met with punishment, I will see to it that you are rewarded. So hang in there. Be steadfast. Don't fall into the despair of this gray and latter age where it's like, oh, nothing I do matters. And don't ever let the gospel be leveraged in service of that. Oh, nothing I do ever matters. Because that's not the gospel. All right, yeah, see a hand.
Yeah, uh, if you, you could comment quickly on this, uh, how this good work of giving a cup of water happens from us who are, we have an old Adam and we have a new nature, a new man. Um, it's God's work through us, I think, but, but if you could just comment on how that happens. It's not, I don't will that good work to happen. Mm, that mm. Well, okay, so I can do a little clarification. I'll try to keep it to an economy of words. Augustine says that God crowns his own works within us. What he means by that is that it's God who converts us. We're dead in our trespasses. It's he who makes us alive in Christ Jesus. It's he who gives us the will to do. And then once we have willed and once we have done it, he gives us the reward. He crowns his own works in us. That's Augustine. It's a brilliant, beautiful point. Now, let's zoom in under the microscope for just a minute. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? The authors of the Formula of Concord, Article 2 in the book of Concord, and Article 2 is on the free will, say that when Christ has, through the power of his word and spirit, made we who are dead in our trespasses alive in Christ Jesus, that he places within us a new will. And that will is oriented toward God, and that new will can cooperate, cooperate with God. So that's where it's not just so simple as saying, well, I'm a glove, God's the hand. He puts himself inside of me and moves me all about, and I'm just uh, along for the ride. That's not a good analogy, because man isn't entirely passive in his sanctification. Man is active in his sanctification, because Christ has given us that new will and set us free. And so, although in great weakness, in great struggle, the good I want to do, I do not. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. All of that, granted, there is nonetheless a new will in the man that says, you know what, I kind of love God. I didn't before. (laughs) I know it's weak, it's nothing to boast of. I know it's fitful. I know sometimes I'm angry at him and sometimes I'm pious and... Uh, Sometimes I'm confident and sometimes I'm not. But you know what? There's something there in you, in your will and willing, that isn't in the pagan. And to deny that is, in fact, to deny the power and work of the Holy Spirit, which, heaven forbid, we would do that. It's also this kind of false piety that comes out of, ironically, where um, it's this false pietism. And it's it's so, so ironic. I mean, I don't know. My head sometimes wants to explode because of all the ironies of theology. But sometimes those who are most opposed uh, to this pietism end up landing in just an opposite kind of pietism. So we're, we're so vehemently opposed to pietism that we're just going to say, um, that, God an- that God entirely animates us and we've got no cooperation whatsoever. And so, again, it's just the opposite of an error is the opposite error. 
So more to the point then would be understanding, like, so what do I mean by the opposite piety? We're too humble to acknowledge that God has done this thing in us, that God has set our wills free, that we can cooperate with God. Ooh, that sounds synergistic. We're too humble to believe that. That's what I mean by the pietism. It's this incurvatus in say and this spiritualization that ends up denying God's word in almost the exact symmetrical opposite of true pietism. Pietism and anti-pietism, just like evangelicalism and anti-evangelicalism, are just symmetrical errors. The biblical truth is always right in the middle. Make sense? Okay, so yeah, God crowns his own works in us, as Augustine says. And when you zoom in on that with a microscope and you use Formula 2 of the Article of Concord, and by the way, they're basing this on scriptures, not least of which that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That seems to be the foundational text there. Um, That the will has been freed to cooperate with God. Now, what would that look like if not? It would look like this. You know, hey son, I want you to take out the trash. Okay, dad, I'll wait and see if the spirit moves me. Son, it's been 15 minutes. Why haven't you taken out the trash? Don't you know that I'm entirely passive in my sanctification, Dad? I've got to wait for the Holy Spirit to be active in and through me and carry me over there like a glove on a hand and do it. You see how that works? It, it It makes a mockery, and it makes a mockery of all those scriptures where Christ actually calls us to do something, to serve our neighbor, to serve Him, our Creator. So rather we recognize, and again, this should be self-evident, certainly self-evident in the scriptures, that there's a cooperative element in our sanctification. But now that cooperative element isn't such that we go before God and say, okay, that particular judgment, you die, here you are before God, and you say, okay, here's my bill. Here's what you owe me. Or here's my spiritual resume. How high in the spiritual high-rise am I going to be living? Those are two perversions of this biblical theology, right? And what those really betray is an entirely anti-Christian spirit. Because the Christian spirit comes before God and confesses only his sins. Christian spirit knows of no good works. He just knows that God is good and will reward good works if God sees any. So I I don't go into heaven expecting that that Jesus is going to be like, wow, Pastor Rhodey, I'm real impressed with all the gold, silver, and precious stones. Nice work. No. (laughs) That is not what I mean. I am going in saying, I know I have the foundation. I know God cannot lie. I am saved, and that's all I know. Now, if he finds anything worthy of commendation, great. If he finds anything worthy of being consumed with fire, great. I'm here for it. I'm aligned with him. All right? And so I don't have any fear in that sense, but nor am I showing up and boasting. Nor am I sitting there, you know, with my own Excel spreadsheet going, there was a cup of cold water. There was a crumb I picked up off the church floor. (sighs) You know? And sometimes you get this in American evangelicalism where, for example, you know, a very prominent teacher would say, All my good works in this life are because I want to be a big man in the next life. I want to live in that spiritual high-rise. I want to be set over worlds. I don't want to be a a little lowly person in the next... next, uh, Well, I kind of do, because that's kind of how Christ is. (laughs) 
You know, and that's the irony, right? We go into heaven not, not desiring to sit on a throne, but desiring to simply be a doorman at the house of God. Just get me in the door, please, that I can dwell with you forever. And, that, and we, in that sense, fulfill that parable where we are called to take the lowest seat. And then, the, and then Christ, the gracious host, will come and place us in the seat that we deserve. That's his calling. That's, or as, and again, it's deserve in the sense of he's the judge, he's the authority, he's the one who knows where everybody ought to sit. Does that make sense? So we commend it all into his hands. We enter with perfect humility. But we're not going to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to deny the reality that God is so gracious. He rewards his own works in us. We're not going to deny the reality that we participate and cooperate in those good works. Um, as so many scriptures uh, indicate. Yeah. I, I'm happy to take the time to do these things because these are hot-button issues in the life of the church, and these are things that have not been taught for many, many years in the church by and large, or at least they're not popular. I have no doubt in my mind that there are pa- faithful pastors out there teaching this stuff. It's just I want to add my voice to their voices and really push forward these biblical truths again because they're so important for us in this day and age. Okay, did that answer the question? Okay, let's, let's just uh, dip a finger into question 52. What things are required to render that faithfulness? Again, with the office of the ministry uh, in view here in specific, I think there are tangents and applications to all of us as royal priests. Chemnitz answer, very many. For since he who wants to teach in the church ought to be certain that he speaks the oracles of God, or what is right before God, and to preserve knowledge or doctrine. All right, then Chemnitz is going to give us uh, six different paragraphs, six different aspects of this. First, he writes, then, it is necessary that he rightly hold fast and understand the principles of sound doctrine, a healthy doctrine, as uh, Vicar rightly preached this morning, and that he be equipped with an average gift to set forth the sum of heavenly doctrine clearly and humbly. Okay, so just dissecting this a little, he needs to hold fast and understand the principles of sound doctrine. Um, Some people can hold fast to it, but not understand it, or at least not understand it well enough to teach. But a man needs to be able to hold these things fast and understand the principles of the sound doctrine. And he needs to be equipped with an average gift, still striving for that, to set forth the sum of heavenly doctrine clearly and humbly. So there are some men who are, who are great, they're just not equipped to teach. And, you know, that's, that's fine, that's just not the unique gift that they've been given, but that's what this office is. So, you know, just in the same way that, like, not everybody's equipped to be a... Boy, I don't know, I, I'd be really curious about this. Um, I know my generation was taught you can be anything you want when you grow up. Well, that was a disappointment. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to be a, a professional football player. Alas, I'm not 6'4", 280 pounds with a 4'4", 40. I mean, that's just, 
Yeah, it's not in the cards, nor is it ever going to be in the cards, no matter how many uh, Cheerios I eat and how much uh, exercise I do. So God gifts us in different ways for different vocations, and we're not all equipped for those vocations. Central at this vocation is an ability to uh, understand the doctrine, hold it fast, and then teach it clearly and humbly. All right, Chemnitz continues, For how shall he render due faithfulness in office who himself either does not understand the doctrine or does not know how rightly to teach and explain the meaning to others. Okay, so that's the first then. And you can see how this flows from the foundation that Chemnitz has laid, the scriptures themselves, the doctrines taught by the scriptures. I mean, again, doctrine just means teaching, ultimately. And the man who holds the office needs to be able to understand these himself, hold them fast, and then be able to have an ability to teach them clearly, uh, to others and to rightly explain their meaning. All right, seeing that we're right at the end of our time, let's plan to pick up with uh, the second point next week in which we're going to see, biblically lined out, the expansive nature of the pastor's use of Scripture in his ministry. The Lord be with you.